Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There were two outstanding mysteries in the Bogle Chandler case. Who covered the bodies? And why didn't the police find a handbag or a purse belonging to Mrs. Chandler at the river? In the minds of investigators, these mysteries were probably linked. No woman would go to a party in that era without a handbag. If you would have your lipstick, you would probably have a hanky in there. So yes, that doesn't make sense. She would have had to have had the handbag with her. Lorraine Blackwood was 10 years old when the Bogle Chandler story broke. It was a very big story at the time. It was on the news, it was you know, in the papers, on the radio, on the television. And because it was so close to home, there was lots of talk amongst the neighbours and people in the street, you know, as to what had happened. In 2006, Lorraine saw a promo for the upcoming broadcast of my film and decided to get in touch. She had a confession to make. Well, when I saw the, that you were doing the show for the ABC, I thought it was time that I spoke up about evidence that I found when I was a child. And no one ever knew We'd never told anyone. My mother was too frightened to go to the police. Lorraine lived in the same neighbourhood where I grew up, which was about a 12-minute drive from the Lane Cove River. We lived in uh, Westminster Road in Gladesville. Down the end of the road, like about 10 houses down, there was a stormwater drain surrounded by bush and rocks that went down to a, a house down the bottom. And we, we went down there all the time. As kids, we'd be down in the stormwater drain and just playing around down the bush and come back up the dirt path. And probably a couple of weeks later, we were down there one day and we found a handbag. I think it was a bone-coloured handbag. And in it was uh, a lipstick and a few bits and pieces and um, a bottle of medication with Mrs Chandler's name on it. And, of course, we went home and said to Mum, we've solved the murder, we've solved the murder, we found Mrs Chandler's handbag. She had a look in the bag and she just said, now, don't tell anyone about this. And she said, that's all right, you just leave it with me. My dad was a merchant seaman, so he was away, and I think that was the reason Mum didn't want to call the police. I think she was frightened that if there was a murderer out there and we've got evidence, Dad not there, and she was there on her own with three kids, one who was disabled. 
And I think that had a lot to do with Mum's reasoning of why she didn't come forward. And she said, don't you say anything about it? And she threw the handbag out. She put it in the garbage bin. It was a bizarre twist. But how did Mrs Chandler's handbag end up six and a half kilometres from where she was found dead? The bag wasn't in the actual stormwater drain, but in the bushes near it, as if someone had thrown it from the road or from the dirt track. I met with Lorraine at the bush location where she'd found the handbag. The only change since 1963 had been the demolition of a house on the bush track beside the drain. I spoke with an elderly neighbour and asked if she knew the name of the person who'd lived in the demolished house. She recalled his name was Batiste, Bill Batiste, who turned out to be the nephew of Eddie Batiste, the greyhound trainer, whom the police had suspected of covering the bodies. The location of Mrs Chandler's handbag was only a two-block detour from the route Eddie Batiste would have taken on his way from the Lankove River to his home in nearby Hunters Hill. Possibly he took the handbag because it had some money in it and he just took it and thought, well, I'll just throw it here in the bushes, no one will find it. In fact, it was the, it was the dirt track that led down to his relative's house. So he probably threw it there on his way home. Maybe he just thought the stormwater would wash it away. I telephoned Lorraine's elderly mother. She confirmed her daughter's story and that she had put the handbag in the garbage. I think in later years she might have had some regrets. I had a chat to her. I told her that I had contacted you and she was very happy about that. I think she was pleased in a way that it was finally out. The police held suspicions about Eddie Batiste. Despite a request for people to come forward who were at the river on New Year's morning, Eddie only came forward when a description of his vehicle appeared in the newspapers three weeks later. We now know that he lied when he told detectives that he hadn't walked his dogs along the riverside track where the bodies were found. Lorraine's confession proves that once and for all. He had clearly taken the handbag, but did he also cover the bodies? I spoke with members of his family. They said Eddie was puritanical when it came to bare flesh. He would spank a child for walking around the house in his or her underwear. How did you hear about the case? The first time we heard about it was from, from Mary's father. He said, have a look in the paper, you'll see about a murder or suicide or something. He said, I happened to exercise my dogs right past where it happened. And uh, that was the first I knew of it. Mary, could you tell me what your brother felt and what happened that morning as far as your dad was concerned? Well, he thought he was a little bit distressed. He said the dad was such a strict person with his morals and that he said he could have seen the bodies there and covered them up. They were stripped from the waist down and being such a person that he was. But I, as I always say, well, why didn't he tell the police that he, he saw them there? He was a darn old crank, you know, very cranky bloke. He, he would tell you what you had to know, but he wouldn't tell you anything extra, I don't think. He wouldn't go that extra yard. 
He'd say, well, it's not my bloody business. Huh? The coppers will fix that up or something like that. They know what they're doing. And uh, he wouldn't put his nose in it, you know. In 2012, a few months out from the 50th anniversary of the case, came another twist in the story. There'd been two witnesses to the deaths of Dr. Bogle and Mrs. Chandler. I was contacted by a retired academic wanted to talk to me about the Bogle Chandler deaths. He'd overheard a group of picnickers discussing my film and book on the case. It sparked a memory of a person he'd met early one morning in 1965, two years after the case broke. 1965, okay, when I was 20, I lived in Canberra, and as I was driving down North 1 Avenue around about five-ish in the morning or thereabouts, there's an area there where there's a park. There's a group of people. I could hear a, a scream and these blokes were carrying on. So I stopped yeah, and then I saw a bra go flying. Anyway, I went out. They were pissed. I wasn't. I pulled this girl away and they were the worst for wear as a, as a consequence. Anyway, she was really, really very, very upset, shaking and all the rest of it. You know, she was just sobbing and crying and, and shivering and looking as if she really wanted to keep away from me. But the alternative was worse than me. He ushered the young woman into his car and drove away from the park. I said, we need to get you to a hospital. And she said, no, I'm not going anywhere near a hospital. I said, well, we're going to have to get you to a police station. A police, they're only just down the road. And she said, no, I'm not going anywhere near the police. I hate the police. Uh, and she just started sobbing. And I then noticed she had a St. Christopher medal around the neck. I made a comment about it. Were you a Catholic? So she said, yes. And I said, yeah, look, so am I. How would you feel if I took you to a convent? Because I happened to actually know a sister, Margaret Mary, who was at a convent in um, Marnica, just across the road from St. Christopher's Co-Cathedral there. You know, she was a really nice lady. So I thought, oh, you know, it's about five, six o'clock by now. You know, they'd be um, doing their morning prayers. So taking her there wouldn't be, a bit, wouldn't be much of a hassle. So she said, okay, you know, she'd go with me. And then she, started, then she, she told me that her um, uncle was a priest and that an aunt was a nun. And so, you know, she sort of began to settle. And then um, when I asked her what, why she was up at that ungodly hour of the morning and walking around, apparently she'd been having nightmares. Uh, a few years ago, she had witnessed uh, a rather strange event um, in Sydney at Lane Cove where two people uh, had done something very strange and then she found out that they died. What happened was she was having this relationship with a very good girlfriend who also was a Catholic. They both went to a Catholic school, etc. Anyway, so they were having this relationship and for about a year they'd been going to this spot on Lane Cove River early in the morning and apparently it was a, a snogging place, you know what snogging yes. Love is is like. yep. uh, Well that sort of a thing, yeah and they would spend a couple of hours there together uh, on this particular night, which happened to be, uh, I think she said it was a, a New Year's Eve or something. She and her girlfriend had been to a party and they decided about three or thereabouts to go and have a, you know, one of their usual little things. They walked down there and as they settled down, they got this smell of rotten egg gas. 
So they packed up and moved um, up the hill a bit. Then when they were packing up around five-ish in the morning, she said, she uh, realised that her purse was missing from a handbag. So they they decided to go back to the, the spot that they had been at to find the purse. And as they were getting close to where they had been, they saw some other people going down the slope. And they thought, oh, well, normally these people don't stay very long. So they, they crept it through the, the shrubbery, she said, I think, and lay down watching. At some point, she said, uh, it was not all that long, the woman said loudly, why have you stopped? What, what's wrong? And they couldn't hear anything from him. I'm not sure whether she said he staggered or he crawled or he rolled. But anyway, he moved from where he had been a short distance. The woman suddenly grabbed her throat and made a a, a strangling noise, got up and staggered off away. Anyway, they waited for um, a little while until um, there was no noise. Then they went down to look for the purse and when they got down there she looked around she did find her purse anyway um at this stage her girlfriend had heard uh, some movement then they saw a man but he turned and looked at them and they looked at him and they just went off in separate directions Partway along the path, she noticed that a girlfriend had a, a handbag. So she said, what's that? Oh, that's a handbag. Oh, isn't it yours? And she said, no. So they just dropped it and kept on going. Then she read uh, the next day or whenever it was that the two bodies had been found. But because they were good Catholics and because they were, they were having a lesbian relationship, she and her girlfriend didn't go and tell the police. They just felt that it would be just too terrible. They just worried about what would happen to them and what would happen to their families. Were you tempted to go to the police with her? No. She pleaded, you know, don't tell anybody. I don't want to go to the police. So I saw her as being extraordinarily fragile. If I do something like that, she could just, you know, she could do herself in. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. It was an incredible story. Perhaps too incredible. But my informant provided a statutory declaration as to the truthfulness of his account. It included details that could only have originated from someone who was at the Lane Cove River on New Year's morning in 1963. Unfortunately, the woman didn't divulge her name. 
I would say to the two women who supposedly might have witnessed my father and Margaret Chandler just before they died, to come forward. Dr Bogle's daughter, Janet Bogle. I think it would help. At least one of them would come forward to help clear this up and to get as true a story as possible and can hopefully resolve the case would be great. As in all cold cases, the lack of a resolution continues to haunt the victims' families, especially the children. Yes, impacted on the children. The elder boy remembered his mother, was aware of his mother. He was two So suddenly there's no mother. The younger boy didn't really have such an immediate awareness, but in the ensuing years, all those chickens came home to roost and all three of us have suffered quite severe psychological and emotional damage arising from this event. I think that when you lose a parent as a child, it affects the children very deeply and and as well, of course, it affects the the mother. And it was a great loss of an essential person in the family. And then on top of that, the circumstances of the death and the way the media treated it escalated that to a, a very traumatic experience. The Daily Mirror in particular, every year, would have a full page or double page spread of pictures and rehash of what happened New Year's Eve 1963. Every year. Now the kids, the boys were at school then and every year this steaming, stinking, rotten newspaper, Daily Mirror, would come out with this sort of stuff. Here these children could see and read and hear all about it. The whole of their school had this refreshed every year. Did these newspaper people think of that sort of thing? No, 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 no. The intrusive media coverage continued to traumatise others associated with the case. Geoffrey Chandler's lover, Pamela Logan, was painted as the femme fatale in the story. With her reputation in tatters, she departed Australia for North America. Margaret Fowler divorced her husband and moved to the United Kingdom. The Chatswood party hosts, Ruth and Ken Nash, suffered irreparable damage to their reputations. A newspaper story labelling them wife swappers became cemented in the mythology of the case. On New Year's Day, nine years after their fateful party, Ruth Nash died of cancer. Her husband, Ken, blamed her illness on the stress she suffered from the Bogle Chandler case. On the 11th anniversary of the deaths, Ken Nash took a rifle next door to a vacant block and shot himself. The failure of the police, scientists and the coroner to identify the cause of death of the victims inevitably led to questions about the thoroughness of their investigations. The coroner's concerns about preserving public morality certainly prevented an open interrogation of the facts. Specifically, there was no acknowledgement that the victims were in good health when they arrived at the river, and that the instrument of death struck them down while lying on the exposed riverbed. Incredibly, no one considered investigating the river, despite the police commissioner's admission 
but that the foul state of the river had hampered the investigation. Moreover, the police diver's decision not to enter the water on the day the case broke should have triggered warning bells. But in the early 1960s, there was scant environmental awareness in Australia. And it was still a long way off. In fact, in the 1990s, the Chief of the Environmental Protection Agency declared the Lane Cove River the most polluted waterway in the state. Toxicologist Viv Marni told me that his failure to solve the case was primarily due to poor communication and a barrage of absurd theories. I'm annoyed that I spent a lot of time on poisons that didn't fit the circumstances, time-wise or the state of the bodies. It was just impossible, some of the things I was looking for. The only clue he found was a purple discoloration of both victims' blood. At our first meeting, I told him about the state of the river and that a purple discoloration of the haemoglobin was an indicator of hydrogen sulphide poisoning. He was taken aback, but it prompted him to research the current scientific literature. I've read plenty of records of it now, of people having cyanosis, discoloration of that nature that have died from hydrogen sulphide. It would seem to be a pointer, wouldn't it, on, on evidence that we, we have. As we all know, H2S is very lethal. The police in Sydney in those days were relatively inexperienced in their state of forensic art. Their level of understanding and awareness of environmental factors was in the kindergarten stage in those days. Uh, and it's taken you to come up with this hydrogen sulphide theory, which in the light of similar sorts of documented cases in other parts of the world seems to stand up to close examination and it seems highly likely that this is the case that, that they died through hydrogen sulphide poisoning. It actually reassured me, I mean it took away some of that fear I was telling you before, you know, but if, when you think, oh maybe there's no, there's no murderer out there after all and there's no actual deliberate harm being done anywhere, that's quite calming really and, and healing in a way, to consider it that way. Well, I think we've all said that we would support the call for a new inquest. Because the old one obviously was not done very well and there's been some new information that your whole theory has now come forward and it would be good to test that theory of yours in an inquest to see if it would be supported and hopefully resolve the case. Before dawn, on an unseasonably cool New Year's morning in 1963, Dr Gilbert Bogle and Mrs Margaret Chandler arrived at the Lanco River. That morning, there appears to have been a rare but highly dangerous convergence of circumstances. Circumstances never contemplated by the original investigators. The river bottom, beside where they sought privacy, had a decade earlier been found to be saturated, half a metre deep, with hydrogen sulphide. A heavier-than-air gas, as toxic as cyanide gas. While pungent in low concentrations, 
It can't be detected by the human nose in high concentrations. I think that they would have realized pretty fast that something was wrong. They might try to get out and stumble backwards, and they can do all sorts of things that you can conceive of someone who is semi-unconscious, actually. If the concentration is high enough of hydrogen sulfide in the atmosphere, when it gets into the blood, it immediately shuts off the ability of the brain to use oxygen, even though there's plenty of oxygen around. It's like putting a plastic bag over the brain. If this case were presented to the court, it would be circumstantial. On the other hand, the evidence that we do have is so strong and extremely consistent with hydrogen sulfide and related death, and I can think of nothing else, neither gas nor any other kind of poison or anything, that could argue against that odd hypothesis. It just seems to me to be unassailable. once hauntingly beautiful Langcove River was the backdrop for one of the world's great forensic mysteries. But no one suspected that the fate of the victims had become intimately entwined with the river in crisis. This podcast series was produced by Blackwattle Films. Many thanks to the interviewees, Sarah Staverley, Calvin Gardner and the National Film and Sound Archive of Australia for their support. For further information about our films, podcasts and books, go to www.blackwattlefilms.com.au And make sure to download Merchants of Menace podcast series, another Blackwattle true crime investigation. It is undoubted that Nugan Hand Bank was involved in drug trafficking. At one point... Nugan Hand became the conduit bank for the CIA. It was 1980, and a merchant banker dies in mysterious circumstances. It was probably an execution, was my immediate assumption. Soon after, his business partner disappears without a trace, or so he thought. The owner of a well-known bank rumored to have ties to the CIA and organized crime vanishes off the face of the earth. Tonight, it's where he turned up that has people around the world shaking their heads. Merchants of Menace is available on your favorite podcast app. Wow, what a story. For true crime aficionados, make sure to buy a copy of Sarah Staveley's astonishing book, A Consequence of Cake. Set in London's Soho Square in the 1740s, it's the story of a dispute between two schoolboys which turns deadly and triggers a battle between wealthy sugar merchants and the aristocracy and ultimately embroils the king. Purchase through blackwattlepress.com.au or Amazon Books. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 